So that actually was a conversation that I had with some people when I was talking to them about teaching people the Bible. I, I actually did say, like, I, I would go through Song of Solomon with a junior higher, and they were like, no, you wouldn't. Uh, we're going through Song of Solomon tonight. <laughs> so um, that's how that ended up going. But I'm totally joking, by the way. This is, like, that conversation did happen, but this is not me settling a bet. That's That would be really dumb. <laughs> but... Tonight we're talking about something extremely important, and I actually, I can't even tell you how excited I am to talk to you guys about this. Like, you guys know how, that's, so you guys know how every single year at the beginning of the school year, we do a four-part series on the gospel? And just every year, as soon as the school year starts, we did one last year, we did one the year before that, we're going to do another one this fall. We're going through the gospel every single year, because if there is one thing that you need to know before you leave this youth group, it's the gospel. Additionally, we're doing a sexual purity message every single year. This is one of those things that it is so crucial for you guys to know and understand because we live in a culture where this is an area where you are going to be tempted. We are surrounded by imagery. We are surrounded by temptations. We're surrounded by bad advice. We're surrounded by teachers and friends and media that are going to drive us to do something that's going to destroy us. And so it's extremely important for me that if I don't teach you guys about this, I'm basically asleep on the job. And this year, we're doing it in the context of our dating series. And so this is dating part two. And who can remind me what the first point was from last week? What was the first thing that we learned about dating that I can say with 100% certainty is part of how you should go about dating? Who remembers? It's don't... There it is. Don't be a temptation. That was it. Yeah, don't sin with or tempt one another. And this week, we're talking about a specific instance of that. So, first things first, before I can talk to you guys about, like, the specific things I want to say tonight, we need to define sexual purity, because it's not helpful for us to talk about it unless we know what it is. Yeah, I do. Uh, It's over here. You can just grab one from over here. So, sexual purity. This is from Genesis chapter 2, and we talked about Genesis chapter 2 a few weeks ago. And it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So one flesh is referring to, in part at least, a sexual relationship. And when we're looking at that, that is the definition of what sexual purity is. And so when we're talking about what sexual impurity is, Sometimes people want to go around and they want to say, well, this isn't allowed, that's not allowed, this isn't allowed, that's not allowed. But if it's not specifically prohibited, then it's fair game. And so if they can't find a specific verse in the Bible that outlaws the specific activity they're doing, then they're like, hey man, I can do it. But we talked last year when we talked about this in 1 Corinthians 7, I said, it'd be like if I said, Timmy, don't punch your brother. And then a second later, I hear the brother screaming and I walk in and I'm like, Timmy, didn't I just tell you not to punch your brother? And then Timmy was like, you said I couldn't punch him. I kicked him. Right? Like we understand that's not how this stuff works. And so when you're dealing with sexual purity, it's not about what are the specific things that are prohibited. It's about what is it supposed to be? So in Genesis chapter two, we see the definition of what sexual purity is. So, that's the definition of sexual purity. Sexual impurity is any sexual pursuit or experience that takes place outside the context of a marriage relationship, which is the relationship between one man and one woman made before God. So, some examples. Two guys sleeping with each other is sexual immorality. 
Sleeping with someone that you're not married to is sexual immorality. Looking at images for the purpose of lusting after them is sexual immorality. And even looking at a person and lusting after them is sexual immorality. Jesus specifically says, if you look at someone and you lust after them, then you have already committed adultery in your heart. And that's from Matthew chapter six, seven. I probably should have checked. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of like, that's some specific things that are sexual impurity, but there's a lot of things that I didn't just specifically list that are also sexual impurity. So sexual impurity is any sexual pursuit or experience that takes place outside of the context of a marriage relationship. And now that we've talked about that, I'm going to move on to one of the two things we're talking about tonight. I want to talk to you guys about resisting temptation. Last year, we talked about why sexual purity matters. We talked from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about how God owns your body and your spouse owns your body. So it matters what you do with it. But this year, I want to help you guys be better at resisting sexual temptation when it comes. So we're going to look at two passages. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 7 and we're going to look at Song of Solomon, a few places from there. So I want to try to move through Proverbs 7 as fast as I can. And as much good stuff as there is in here, I think it's very important for us to get to Song of Solomon. So on your handouts, if you flip your handouts over to the other side, you're going to see that I've actually already printed out for you the sections that I want you to look at. Uh, I didn't include the entire chapter because it would just take too much time. So these are kind of selected sections that give you the flow of the story. And I'm going to read this. And it says in verse six, for at the window of my house, I looked through my lattice and I have seen among the simple and I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense passing along the street near her corner, uh, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, a woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. In verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly and I have found you. And then after that is a verse that says her husband is not at home. I should have left that in. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast. And in verse 24, and now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. So this is a a pretty sad story, a bit of a tragedy. I want you to learn something that was extremely valuable to me when I first learned it. You'll see at the bottom of your handout, it says, which verse, in which verse did the young man become a fool? At what portion of this story did he become a fool? We're actually going to stop for a moment. I'm going to give you guys a few minutes. I want each of you on your own to read that story again. And I want you to tell me, or I guess write in your handout, I should say, when does the young man become a fool? I'm going to give you a minute to think about that. And then I'm going to have you go to your partner. You guys are going to talk to each other about it. And then we're going to come to the middle. And I want to see if you guys can tell where in this story does the young man become a fool? Okay, I want to hear some answers. Where, at which point in the story does the young man become a fool? You can give me your answer. You can also give me the answer of the person next to you. Uh, Ella, what's, what's your answer or one of the things you guys talked about? What is, when does the young man become a fool? Um, 
verse 21. Why? Why verse 21? With much seductive speech, she persuades him. And she compels him. Why that one? Yeah, so he is persuaded to do it. So he actually agrees to go do the sinful thing. Okay. All right. Connor, what do you guys say? What do you guys talk about? At what point does the young man become a fool? What'd you write in your paper? What did Caden write in his? Eight. Verse eight. Why verse eight? Oh! That was what I was going to say. So why verse eight? Connor, why verse 8? Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. Why is that when he becomes a fool? Any guesses? What might the reason be? Because he's going to her house? Yeah, all right. Any other guesses? I'll take one more guess. Alex? Oh, we got the same answer. Same answer, verse 8, because he's passing along her street corner. Any other guesses? Because he puts himself in danger. Those are my boys right there. A. All right, you guys want to know the answer? verse 7. It's actually verse 7. I told you it was 7. Because before... (laughs) So verse 8 is the reason. So verse 7, the instant this guy is introduced, he is a fool. Because Solomon says, I looked and I saw a young man lacking sense. The moment we're introduced to this guy, he's a fool. Why? Verse 8. So if you said verse 8, fantastic answer. I liked liked 21 too. That was a very good one. But, wow. But verse 8 is the reason. He is putting himself... He is putting himself in the way of temptation. The issue is this. We aren't that strong. Your sexual drive is going to be a powerful thing. And as you get older, it's going to get more and more tempting. You're going to be surrounded by opportunities to sin. The goal is not to put yourself in tempting situations... And then overcome them. The point is to avoid the temptation altogether. In the New Testament, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Run away. And so the first thing that we see is if you want to know um, the first point that we're here. The first point is avoid tempting situations. Avoid tempting situations. Like one of the things that I typically see and that is extremely common with dating is that anytime someone's talking about dating and they're talking about boundaries, their question is, how far can I go before it's sinful? That's typically what people are asking. That's where their mind is. It's like, okay, what's the farthest I can go that's okay? And that is the wrong question. The question is not how uh, far can I go and it's still okay. The question is, how can I avoid this at all costs? Like, imagine if you have a dog. You're not going to have someone who's, like, feeding their dog chocolate, and they're like, how much chocolate can I feed my dog before my dog dies? I want to get as close to that line as possible. Yeah. Two things. One, I have a dog. Nice. So we all know. And two, um, you can feed some dogs. Yeah, it has to be half their body weight. So if your dog's 
Fine, let's say rat poison. Let's say that you're trying to feed your dog just enough rat poison so that it doesn't... Yeah, you're missing the point. So no one is like, how much rat poison can I feed my dog before the dog dies? Everyone's instead like, how about I just don't feed him poison? And when you're putting yourself in tempting situations, when this young man is walking by the house of the harlot, he's putting himself in a situation for her to come out and persuade him in. And it's not sinful to walk down a certain street, but it is sinful to commit adultery with someone. And he put himself in a situation where he was going to be tempted to do the sinful thing. And this is one of the most important lessons that I personally have learned about sexual purity, because sexual purity comes up in a lot of different forms where, for example, if you're struggling with like the internet stuff, then if you know, like, oh, I typically struggle with my phone at this time in these places, go to bed before those times give someone else your phone at those times if you can't have your phone in the same room as you when you're going to bed or whatever give your phone to your parents before you go to go like before you go to bed and that's one of those things where the goal is not how can i not sin the goal is how can i avoid tempting situations one of the most important lessons that i've learned is this the battle that you never fight is better than the battle that you win because the battle you win could have been a battle you lost. And it's better to just avoid the risk altogether. And so when we're looking at sexual purity in the context of dating, one of the things that you learn is we talked last week about how if you're dating, you're still single. Your physical boundaries with someone are still exactly the same after you're starting to date as they were before. But also, if you're dating someone and you're thinking, I don't even wanna be in a tempting situation, your physical boundaries with the person you're dating might actually be more strict than your personal boundaries with people that you aren't dating. Because in Matthew 5, 27 to 29, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone that looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Jesus is saying it does not matter what lengths you go to. It doesn't matter what you miss out on. Don't sin. It's not worth it. And so in your dating relationship, have things in place where you're not sinning. So we could spend more time on that, and I'd like to spend more time on that, but we need to move on. So what I will say is this. One piece of practical advice in that. When you're dating someone, don't be in private spaces alone with them. This is one of those things that, again, since she continuously comes up in my sexual purity messages, but this was one of those things that Joy and I were extremely careful about. Anytime we were coming and we were going to like my parents' house, for example, I had texted my parents beforehand to make sure that someone else would be in that house before we got there. In your life, don't put yourself in situations where you're likely to uh, mess up. Because look at the end of chapter seven. It says, a many a victim she has laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol going down to the chambers of death. So as we go on to Song of Solomon, something you should understand about Proverbs. Proverbs is not a book that says these are the rules you have to follow or God will judge you. Proverbs is not actually a book of morality. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's a book where someone is saying, this is how life works. If you cut off your arm, you bleed. If you like one of those kinds of things, like basic axiomatic things where in life, if you do these specific things, it destroys you. If you're lazy, you're not going to have money. If you're lustful, for example, that's destructive to you. 
And so the person is not saying, if you're commit adultery with someone, God's going to kill you. The person is saying committing adultery with someone is a deadly thing, apart from whether or not God punishes you. Like a lot of times with sexual impurity, God's actually guarding you from the consequences, even though you face a lot of consequences. Like God's merciful rather than being judgmental, because impurity on its own is already so damaging. And of course, God also judges impurity, but when God gives you instructions about sexual purity, he's not trying to ruin your fun. He's actually trying to do the best thing for you. Sexual impurity is a damaging thing. And so the question is not how far can I go? The question is how do I avoid attempting situations so that I don't even have to fight that battle? But now we're moving on because I need to talk to you about Song of Solomon. So introduction to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is a book in the Old Testament written by Solomon. Uh, it goes, you know, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And Song of Solomon is a book about romance. It's a book about intimacy. It's a book about sexuality in the context of a marriage. And some things about Song of Solomon is that historically, a lot of people reading Song of Solomon were extraordinarily like anti-sex where they were like, you know, sex is a really bad thing. Sex is a dirty thing. Even if you're married, you really shouldn't do it. Like it's kind of impure and bad, which by the way, is not at all what God thinks about sex. Proverbs says, be exhilarated always by the wife of your youth. Like God is super into like that, all that stuff. We just read Genesis chapter two, where God in, where God institutes marriage. And he says, be one flesh with each other. God made sex. God put sex into creation, into the world as an act of kindness because God loves you. And before there was sin, there was sex. So God made it to be enjoyed. But God made it to be enjoyed in a specific context. And Song of Solomon is this book that gets ostracized because there's so many graphic things in the Bible. You can't get through the book of Genesis without seeing polygamy, adultery, incest, and I could go on. Like the Bible talks about sex all over the place. But in the vast majority of places, it's God saying, don't be sexually impure or giving you examples of people that were sexually impure and got judged for it. Song of Solomon is one of the few places in the Bible where God says, this is what I'm intending for you. This is the way you're supposed to go about it. And then that's when people are like, oh, no, not that. Like if we're talking most graphic things in the Bible, Song of Solomon doesn't even make top 10. Song of Solomon is actually about romance. Song of Solomon is actually about intimacy. It's genuinely about marriage sexuality. And so God includes it in the Bible to say, this is what my intention is for you. And I want to give you a section. You can turn to Song of Solomon chapter four if you want to. And we're going to talk about verse nine. So one of the cool things about Song of Solomon, by the way, it's not graphic at all. Like if you read it, it's so veiled in metaphor and they're talking about wanting each other for sure but it doesn't actually, like nothing actually happens in Song of Solomon. There are a lot of situations in the Bible where things actually happen. In Song of Solomon, they just talk about wanting each other genu like generally. But in Song of Solomon chapter four, verse nine, this is a wedding scene. And it says, and this is the, um, the bridegroom talking to the bride. And he says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are in your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. 
So when you're looking at that, if you really wanted to like boil that down to one sentence, um, it's the bridegroom going, she's hot. I'm attracted to her. Right? It's like, man, one look of your eyes, it just undoes me. You're beautiful. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like God's looking at this and he's saying, that's the way it's supposed to be in a marriage. But I want to draw your attention to verse 12. Read verse 12 again. It says, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. When Song of Solomon talks about a garden, that's a metaphor for the person's body. And when the Bible, a lot of places, talks about a spring, that's a reference to sexuality. So Song of Solomon is saying, this is my bride and she is pure. She is undefiled. She hasn't been with anyone else. I'm the only one because she was a garden locked. She was like a castle with its walls up. She was guarding herself. And so this is someone who was saving themselves for marriage, if we want to use like the Christianese vernacular. But in addition, there's kind of this thing that constantly comes up in Song of Solomon a few places. And it says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up my love until it pleases. Essentially, she's saying, don't tempt me to engage in this intimacy until it is the proper time. And there's a massive emphasis on doing it in the proper context. And so I want to give you the other side. We've, we've seen the bridegroom talking about the bride, but then after they're married, this is something that's a discussion from the bride to the guy. And it says in verse 10 of chapter 5, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a pool. Verse 15, his legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And if we want to boil that down to like one sentence, he's hot. I'm into him. And that's a good thing. And this is the second thing that I want to get your attention to. A lot of times there's this idea that when you're looking at love in the context of a marriage, it's supposed to be entirely non-physical. Verse 16, his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. God wants you to be physically attracted to the person that you're marrying. That's a good thing. That's something that God intends. But notice this also. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. The marriage relationship is not something that is only physical. The marriage relationship is something that is a deep relationship. It is a deep intimacy. It is a deep friendship. And then the physical intimacy is something that goes along with and strengthens that. In our culture, we constantly view intimacy as something that's like transactional, where it's completely separated from a relationship, where you'll have a bunch of people talking about like having a one night stand, where you sleep with a stranger and then you never see them again. And there's no relationship involved. And God's saying, that's not what I'm intending for you. I'm intending for you to have the closest friend of your life. I'm intending for you to be so close to them and then for your physical relationship to be an outpouring of that. And the thing that this comes down to is that God made sex as a good thing. And this is the thing that I'm, this is the reason that I'm telling you all of this. In our culture and in the church, 
because people didn't want to talk about sex, because people wanted to like completely get rid of everything God says about the proper function of sexuality, we just never talked to anyone about it. No one ever tells the kids, no one ever tells the people growing up in youth group, and then you get a bunch of parents that have never learned about this stuff, and then they can't teach their, their kids. And what ends up happening is that in the church, you have a bunch of people going into the world, and they're having to say, I want that, but I can't have it. I want that, but I can't have it. I see what my friends are doing with each other over there, and I want to do that, and I just have to not. I see what's like, you know, showing on TV shows. I see the things that my teachers are telling me. I hear the advice that I'm getting from my friends. I want those things, but I just can't have it because I'm a Christian. And that's how a lot of times people go into the world is that they're trying to just force themselves to not do the things they want despite being surrounded by it. And can't you just tell how that's so tiring? How that's so soul-grating? How that's so destructive? And then eventually, if you're constantly thinking about the things you want to do but can't, it's so much easier to fall into that temptation. That's not what God wants for you. A while ago, I talked about if you have a cup and that cup is full of air and I'm trying to like grab the air and pull it out of that cup and I'm just trying to get it out. Like assuming I could grab air, as soon as I get the air out of that cup, what's going to happen? What do you mean nothing? Air is going to go back in. And when you're going into the world and you're looking at all the things that you want but can't have and you're saying, I can't have that, I can't have that, I can't have that, I want that, but I can't. That's like trying to pull air out of a cup. Instead, what you need to do is fill that cup with water. Replace it with something heavier. And what I just read to you is God's intention of marriage. God's intention for marriage is for two people who have saved themselves for each other to come together and have this extraordinarily enjoyable relationship that is predicated on relational intimacy. And what God says is, don't destroy yourself. And I want to read you again from chapter 8. And this is after Song of Solomon. This is after talking about these two people saving themselves for each other and then finally enjoying this relationship. At the end of it, it refers to a young girl. And I'm not going to read the description, but it refers to a prepubescent girl. And in verse 8, referring to this girl, it says, What shall we do for our sister on the day that she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. And then the bride speaks and she says, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. And then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. So here's two things that I'm telling you about that. Thing number one, they're looking at this young girl who is not engaged in any sort of temptation, who's not even in the dating realm, who's not even in the marriage realm, and they are already teaching her about how to think about this stuff. This is crucial. The book of Song of Solomon in the Jewish uh, culture was read every single year on Passover to everyone, parents and children, regardless of how young. And so first of all, we should teach people young. You know, the time to prepare for something is not five years after it happens. The time to prepare for something is before it happens. But here's the other thing. In verse 9, if she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. When you're referring to your garden, you can think of yourself as a garden enclosed in a wall. And if you're a guy, you can imagine the fact that one day your queen is going to walk into that garden. Or if you're a girl, you can imagine the fact that one day your king is going to walk into your garden. And what are they going to find? Are they going to find a garden that has already been trampled and ransacked by however many people beforehand? Or are they going to find a garden that you have been keeping and cultivating and guarding, waiting for them? 
Because we talked in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, your spouse owns your body. They might not be here yet, but you're supposed to be keeping it and keeping it for them for when they eventually do come. Because in verse 9, it also says, but if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. So if it's the kind of situation where like people are coming in and coming out whenever they so please, there's just no defense. If she's a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. We will, you know, we will glorify her. We will, it's going to be a good thing. But if she's a door, we can't even focus on that stuff. We can't, you know, adorn her with silver. We just have to board up that door. We can't focus on honoring you. We're trying to stop the damage of all the people coming in and going out that are ruining the garden you're supposed to be saving, right? And here's the thing that you learn. The reason that God tells you what he tells you about sexual purity is not because he's a tyrant in the sky. It's not because he's trying to take away your fun. It's because he's trying to say, I made this. I know how it works. I want you to enjoy it. And when you pursue sexual impurity, you're actually damaging your ability to love your spouse in the future. You're giving up the good gift that God is intending for you. And you're doing permanent damage to yourself. And it's not to say that God can't forgive you. It's not to say that God can't put the pieces back together, but there will be ongoing consequences if you're pursuing sexual immorality. And that doesn't just mean sleeping with someone. It starts so far before that. When my dad used to teach these messages, he would say that you can't touch someone with a bathing suit covers. And as much as I'd like to say that, there's a whole lot of stuff you shouldn't be touching that modern bathing suits don't cover anymore. <laughs> so it doesn't quite work anymore. <laughs> But it starts way before you go, quote, all the way, which I hear way too much in youth groups. But all that to say, the reason I'm talking to you about Song of Solomon is I do not want you going into the world looking at that and saying, I want that, but I can't have it. I want that, but I can't have it. I want that, but I can't have it. I don't want you having to face temptation that way. Here's what I want for you instead. I want you to say what God intends for me is so good. I want that more than I want that. That is a fundamentally different way of responding to temptation. When you say, I want that, and I'm going to fix my eyes on what God intends for me, and I'm not willing to give up the good thing that God has for me to go after the thing that I want now, because I want that more. First of all, that honors God, because that's you saying, God, I trust you. You've said that this is the best thing for me, and I believe you. That honors God in a big way. And additionally, that is going to help you resist temptation as you go into the world in a massive way that me giving you a bunch of rules is not going to. We talked so much about how God loves you, and that's why he gives you his commandments. He created a good world, and then he said, go enjoy it and say thank you. One of the things that is going to help you so much as you're going through life is when you understand that God's commands are a gift. God's commands are not just prohibitions. God's commands are a gift. And that's what I want to give you. And so that's why I read you Song of Solomon. Hopefully I don't get angry emails. So in conclusion, it's important to understand what sexual purity is. Sexual purity is any sexual pursuit or experience outside the context of marriage. It's important that you're not thinking in terms of how far can I go without crossing the line, but instead that you're thinking, how can I live in such a way that I'm not exposing myself to temptation? The battle that you never fight is better than the battle that you win. And lastly, God has a good gift in store for you. God intends for something so good for you, 
And the reason he gives you commands is so that you're not jeopardizing the good gift he wants to give you. There are genuine consequences when you disregard God's design. And God is kind and God is merciful. And I actually, I want to close, but I can't because there's one more thing I have to say. Last year, we talked about this in 1 Corinthians, but Paul says, and this is off the top of my head, I don't, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, surely I say to you, fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, and homosexuals will not enter the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified by Christ Jesus, our Lord. And one of the things that is so crucial is that if you blow it and if you mess up and if you struggle with sexual impurity, that's not the end. There are consequences to that and it is difficult and it is better for you to not do that. But also, when that happens, the response is to come to God, repent and start again, trusting that he can put the pieces back together. You know, sexual sin is not minor, but also it's not the end of the world. People struggle with it and that doesn't make it okay. The way that you respond to sin is not to hide it. The way that you respond to sin is to come to God and to put it out in the open and let Christ cover it. <sighs> That's a lot of stuff. Oh! Ha 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 ha! Ha 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 ha! Ha 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 yeah, I just straight up didn't even fill in the second point. Avoid tempting situations. Point number two, God's plan is better. God's plan is better. Uh, uh, reasons. All right, let's bow our heads, close our eyes, pray it out. <sighs> Lord, thank you for your design. Thank you for the fact that you have given us something that is pleasurable, that is enjoyable. Thank you for giving us the gift of physical intimacy. But Lord, also, thank you for the giving us the instructions that surround that. Lord, you created sex and you designed it and you know the best way to do it. And Lord, when you give us commands, it is not just to keep us from doing the things that we would enjoy but you give us commands because you love us. You give us commands because you know that sexual impurity will damage us. You give us commands because you know that you have designed things in such a way and you love us too much to watch us just simply walk into it. I pray that you would help each of us to first of all, understand what sexual impurity is, that we would understand what the standards are, but also Lord, that we would recognize that what you have for us is better. That we wouldn't be going into the world just looking at all the things that we want and can't have, but that we would go into the world wanting you more and realizing that you can satisfy in us in a way that sin can't. Lord, that we can experience intimacy in a way that actually brings us closer to you instead of driving a wedge. Lord, please help us. We live in a difficult culture and we live with temptation and we live with strong desires. Please help us to rely on you and to honor you. And I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen.